Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, and welcome back to season two, episode two of Take the Last Bite, a show where we lay Midwest nice out on the table, and then we flip that table to have honest conversations about the radical work of Midwest queer and trans communities. For today's episode, I'm excited to be talking with a good friend of mine whose work is centered around changing people's minds. If you're interested in learning how to approach starting your own business, how to embrace the inevitability of failures, and how to stay true to your vision without worrying about pleasing everybody else, then you're going to want to stick around. But first... I want to follow up to some points I made in our episode from two weeks ago when I griped about the latest surge in anti-trans legislation, specifically looking at the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida and a statement put out by the Texas Attorney General and the Governor of Texas where they essentially say that gender-affirming care for minors is quote-unquote child abuse. Just a few days after we aired that episode, Iowa decided to join the pack of states pushing forward egregious legislation and signed into law a bill that bans trans girls from participating in girls' sports. Now, I am not someone who cares about sports ball in general, but what I think is essential to point out about this particular transphobic tactic is that the talking points around who can participate in K-12, collegiate, and professional sports is not about the integrity of the game or the fairness of competition. It's just another measure to prevent trans people from participating in public life, whether it's what bathrooms or locker rooms we can use, what types of activities we can participate in, or how we can show up in the world. It's about denying our existence. And what was particularly haunting to me when it came to the Iowa decision is who was present at the precise moment it was signed into law. There's a picture floating around where the Iowa governor is seated at a table and she's surrounded by a large group, rows deep of white, primarily blonde, smiling, young, cis girls. It looks like a scene out of a damn Jordan Peele movie. I was talking to a friend who shared that something she's learned is that when a group of white women gather around a document, it usually means someone's rights are being taken away. And this is a prime example of exactly that. There's this dangerous idea that comes from cis, primarily white women that denying trans women from participating in women's spaces, whether it be sports, music festivals, survivors' spaces, support services, etc., is in the interest of protecting women. And it is how we end up with codified instances of trans women being denied the opportunity to participate in experiences for women. And I would assert that there is a particular responsibility of cis women who don't hate trans people to challenge this, to talk to your people, and to disrupt this idea. Broadening our understanding of what it means to be a woman and also being more precise about the spaces we're creating in which we're trying to provide support for folks who are impacted by misogyny, sexism, misogyny noir, and gender-based discrimination is going to take us much further 
toward disrupting patriarchy and gender inequity than what is currently taking place. There is no winning if certain people who are impacted by gender oppression decide that they are more worthy of being liberated than others. Iowa is just the unfortunate example of the day and there are many more battles ahead of us and we have work to do, but I think it's important to also consider how much responsibility we have in that work and how one role differs from those who are directly targeted by these attacks. Let trans girls play sports. Let trans children exist. And let people say gay? This is getting out of hand, but we are strong, we are capable, and we have a rich history that has set a precedent for what we do when folks try to eradicate us from existence. We continue to show up, spring up, and expand. So let's hold on to that history and keep it moving. Today's guest is very familiar with honoring our history in order to plan for the future. Sebastian Nemec, AKA Coach Bastion, is a personal development coach. He is a writer, an entrepreneur, and he is here to chat with me about how to adjust your mindset to approach starting a new business and why he specifically focuses on queer and trans entrepreneurs in his coaching practice. Let's get down to business on Take the Last Bite. Y'all, we cannot do this. We cannot be these stereotypical Midwesterners. Please eat the rest of this food. We just have these conversations every day with people. Like, this is exhausting. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? I don't know who you are, but <laughs> we're going to talk by the potatoes for five minutes. Because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay. Yeah, I'm broke all the time, but I look amazing. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's, um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, fam. So we um, have known each other for six years. I was doing the math. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and over that six years, I feel like your life trajectory has taken a few um, twists and turns, but ultimately have has been predicated on the same uh, core aspiration, right? Um, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. So I'm hoping that you can start with sharing who you are and what you're up to right now. Yeah, sounds good. So my name is Sebastian, or you can call me Bastion because I go by Coach Bastion mm -hmm. and I'm a personal development coach for queer and trans entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So I primarily help them with the mindset and accountability and goal setting piece when it comes to setting up their business and growing their business, because I feel like a lot of people can figure out the how, but the biggest obstacle is getting into that new mindset of generating your own income working with however many different kinds of people, uh, clients, customers, building relationships. It can be a big change from going from an employee to an entrepreneur. So that's what I primarily uh, do now. Mm -hmm. Leading up to this current venture of yours, what is your background in entrepreneurship that uh, 
undergirds how you're able to then coach people through their entrepreneurship journeys and goals. Yeah. So my background is actually all over the place. (laughs) I think a lot of people, it doesn't go back as far as having a lemonade stand when I was a kid, but in college, I, I started out as a poli-sci major because I was a nerd and into politics. And then I was on the school newspaper in high school. And so I went to college uh, for poli-sci with a minor in journalism. And then I actually left for some military training and then a deployment. And when I was coming back, I knew I wanted to switch from poli-sci. So I went into entrepreneurship. Just the vibe was not for me, actually. I did one semester, but found out halfway through the semester that my university had a cultural entrepreneurship program Mm -hmm. in the College of Liberal Arts. And I'm like, that's where my people are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I switched to what we call QCUE, cultural entrepreneurship, and went on to graduate with that degree and did some business competitions uh, in there. And I try to start my own business from there. And I learned a lot from trying to start that business. Mm -hmm. And then I did freelance work after graduating from college, along with a day job. And I actually started an MBA program in fall 2020. So during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. online, and it didn't challenge me in the ways that I needed. Like I said, it was online. And so everything was Uh, pretty templated versus going to an in-person university. And I was really just chasing the paper. I knew I just wanted to make one and I didn't want to have as much of a limit. I wanted more uh, freedom. And around New Year's going into 2021, I don't even remember what I was Googling. I think I was Googling something about passive income because I was following uh, Arlen Hamilton. If uh, you know who she is. And for folks who don't know, look up Backstage Capital, Arlen Hamilton. She came out with a book called It's About Damn Damn Time. Amazing Black lesbian woman who started her own venture capital firm when uh, Silicon Valley said F you. (laughs) So she's a big inspiration to me. And uh, yeah, so I just kind of follow, was looking at passive income because I was taking one of her courses actually and figure out what skills I could offer. And I knew I wanted to help the queer and trans community being a queer and trans individual myself. And again, I don't know how coaching came on my Google search, but then I was like, huh, I'm going to look into this a little bit more. And I did and found a coaching certification program that aligned with my values and didn't seem like a scammy weekend, $500 certificate (laughs) kind of deal. And just went for it. It was one of those like a gut feeling. It actually, I didn't go for it the first time uh, because I was in the middle of my program and I was like, no, I I need to finish my program and then maybe I'll look back at it because I knew I couldn't do a day job, full-time MBA and do a coaching certification program. But then they had a deal come up about a month later and I was nearing the end of my uh, MBA term. And so I'm like, I'm doing it. So I left my MBA program, signed up for the certification and haven't looked back since. So I feel like that is such an interesting like trajectory from college, right? Because I think, you know, when I think about college education, 
and the way that we're messaged around like, oh, you have to go to college to get the job that you want, right? Like it's very um, stringent around like, get your degree, go get the job you want, make the money, do whatever, right? Like that is the, the kind of touted success story for going to college, right? And what I think I appreciate is that like you're kind of naming, you know, you did some exploratory stuff at a certain point during college you, you know, graduated, right, and then sauntered off to, like, kind of continue doing some of that exploratory stuff to then land upon this certificate program while you're in the middle of an MBA, which is, in many ways, too, kind of this, like, natural next step that we're encouraged to take after you graduate undergrad. Um, I also think the college story is vital to this conversation too, because that's how you and I um, came into each other's um, ecosystems, right? I started as a staff person um, at uh, the college you attended, um, and I'm pretty sure you were the first, to my knowledge, trans person that I encountered, right? Because you intentionally came to my office, you're like, hey, hi, hello, like, let me know what you need, and I was like, yeah. like thank you for that like, was a student leader <laughs> of the queer group queer student right. group mm-hmm. yep um so then like from there because that was in summer of 2016 and you graduated in the december 2017 right like i distinctly remember um you know as you were doing your cultural entrepreneurship program um many occasions where you would like pop in my office plop down on my couch and you're like this is this is the brainstorm that I'm on right now, or this is the big idea that I have at this moment. And we would just talk, right? Like, and I know jack shit about like business building in in the way of like corporate or like LLC type business building. I don't know a lot about 90% of the stuff that you were coming into my office to talk about, but the way that I feel like you and I were able to go on these like long brainstormy conversations, right? Was that the core motivation behind every idea you had was how do I develop something with queer and trans folks in mind? How do I develop something that is going to uplift queer and trans people because of all of the existing barriers that exist to queer and trans folks either starting their own businesses or like getting their own like creations out into the world or accessing funding to be able to start whatever kind of big idea venture that they have in mind um and even talking to you now right like it feels like that is still like a big motivator behind your coaching um to then support queer and trans entrepreneurs so i feel like um what i want to talk into a bit too right is thinking about all of the iterations of idea <laughs> that have maybe taken place right between all the times you came in came into my office and then like in this moment with your coaching is like, what are some of those barriers, right? To queer and trans folks, either as entrepreneurs or as content creators or as folks looking to like get invested in to be able to do whatever their big idea is. Yeah, there's definitely a number of obstacles (laughs) that come to mind, uh, but I feel like some of them have been improved upon one of them being like business knowledge uh gaining different kinds of knowledge is a lot more accessible than it was in past years even like past in 2016. now like google they have a lot of different courses online that people can take uh to your point with social media there's people putting a lot of free content free value out there 
and then people can purchase and work with a specific uh, person or buy one of their courses to learn more in depth. And so some of the knowledge, there's barriers once you get to a certain level. Foundations, I think that access to learning business foundations is a lot more accessible, but it also, it's it's a character trait of, uh, are you a researcher? Are you somebody that uh, will be more driven to go out and figure out this information on your own? Mm -hmm. And do you have that same uh, capability to teach yourself things? So there's a lot of different things at play here. And that that isn't always just with the LGBT uh, community, but I feel like with trans folks being heard, especially with our ideas. Most Mm. of the queer and trans people that uh, I've talked to, their businesses also focus on helping other queer and trans people, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's designing specific clothing for that community, whether that is getting them uh, access to different services or providing different services like web design or done for you service providers. Um, So access to funding and then access to loans and understanding what you can do and what you what you need to get started so like i said i I think people can learn the basic terminology with business Mm -hmm. uh but like we we've talked about before is yeah i have a degree in culture entrepreneurship that doesn't mean that i can go and start a 500 million dollar company Sure. There is a lot more that goes into it. Uh, a big thing is mentorship and representation that I found. Okay. So for when I mentioned Arlen Hamilton, she's somebody that I look up to as like inspiration because that's one of the few queer people that I have similar values to. I think some people don't always understand too how how hard it can be to get something started. Like with my first business in college, I won money in a business competition, but it, it wasn't just given to me. The It was through a university. And so they had to like, if I wanted, like I used it to attend a conference. And so they bought my plane ticket, the hotel, that kind of stuff. And so I never saw like in cash. And so I wanted to buy like camera equipment to make content, but they couldn't do that. Cause they're like, well, we had to buy it. And then it's, it's like, we would technically own it. So that was stupid having the wherewithal to put together this presentation, to participate in this, um, you know, competition essentially, where then you're allocated funding, but it's restricted funds, right? And so like, I think- you weren't told beforehand would be restricted either. Right, like there's parameters around it. And I think that's a pretty like prevalent thing, like whether we're talking about nonprofit from my vantage point or like any kind of, you know, business venture, LLC, independently owned business type situation or even corporate, right? Like it's rare that you're kind of given access to um, unrestricted funds. And so I think the the complexity of what it means for queer and trans folks, especially multiply marginalized queer and trans folks to like, whether it's taking out a loan or filing for a grant or like whatever ways in which you're trying to accrue funding, if there's restrictions on either what you're allowed to buy or do with that money or like how you then access the money or like how quickly that money can like fall in hand um right like it creates it elongates the time it makes complexity and bureaucracy to like your spending um but then it also i think risks i think about this especially from the vantage point of nonprofits, is that it makes it so that you kind of 
are pressured to shift gears around making sure that you're complying with the requirements of the money. Um, you know, I think about a book um, that my team has read called the revolution will not be funded and it talks about the nonprofit industrial complex where you know the risk of applying for funding from like some major philanthropic foundation is that you're then kind of at like the beck and call of that organization's parameters around how you're supposed to spend and then you have this additional bureaucracy around having to report all of this information about how you're using the money um you know and there, there might be other limitations if your values don't align exactly and sometimes, I, you know, the book especially, but like you see these examples of organizations and agencies kind of changing their politic because they need they need the money, you know, and it's this really shitty double bind, I think. And so I'm curious for you, like in thinking about when you're coaching folks or your own experiences or what you're hearing or seeing from other folks kind of in your circles, like how do you how do you work around all of these like restrictions in either funding monetary capital um or like other types of capital like social capital which we definitely wanted to talk about yeah when it comes to funding capital i i've seen a very various things whether it's self-funded or people are applying for grants or applying at different competitions because uh, some corporations will have uh, these competitions where people can pitch their idea and then they get funding and then the corporation gets a pat on the back because they helped a queer entrepreneur or a diverse candidate, more like it. And so it's one of those things where it's like, oh, it's it sucks to like play the, this game, but at the same time, you have to play the game to gain power in the game which gets which gets dicey too mm -hmm. and so I, th I think of uh like with just capitalism and the reasons people build businesses so i want a lot of money because well one affords me to live comfortably but also one of my like dreams is to be able to walk into a fundraiser and drop like a five or ten thousand dollar check without blinking mm -hmm. an eye for a cause that i really <laughs> care about sure and when when you have more money you have more power and if more queer people have more money and more power we can create more change that mm -hmm. needs to be seen mm -hmm. unfortunately that's the world we live in right now and so how do we live in the world while still not compromising our values and what we really want to stand for mm -hmm. uh, I, i've worked with a, a queer entrepreneur before who they were like, I just want to make this amount of money. But then in my head, I'm like, well, you want to live in this place, but the cost of living in this place. And so they, they're trying not to take up space, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so then what I tell a lot of queer people, too, is take up a lot of space because I people don't realize how much money is truly out there there's what the u.s isn't like trillions of dollars a debt it i can't shows. even fathom how much that actually looks like <laughs> and, and and so there's an abundant amount of money out there it's waiting for us to take it sure. and so how do we get access to it and the, i think this kind of feeds into the social part of it too is we sometimes think that if we are making a bunch of money that means our other queer entrepreneur over here can't be 
it's the zero sum game right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but it's that's not the case yeah and i i'm not a sociologist or any kind of that sciencey background <laughs> but i'm sure that's probably it, it was a system that was created mm-hmm. by the people in power uh-huh. to keep the people who are not in power without power and so then that kind of pins people against each other being like well why why do you need that much money i see when i was working on my business in uh, college i was talking with some small some smaller owned trans companies that i'm like these are big names in trans circles and so then with my business it was about essentially providing them an additional platform to sell their products Mm -hmm. and so to be able to do that i would need to take some percentage and but they were they couldn't afford to do that but in my mind they were like you're but you're so well known you got to be selling a bunch of stuff but it was really like still just two people mm-hmm. creating all this uh, it was like apparel creating all this apparel and i'm like this this it shouldn't be this way this they would usually have another full-time job too and i'm like mm-hmm. this should be your full-time job I like how can we make it so you don't have to have another full-time job this can be what you want to do mm-hmm. and because what they're doing is helping the queer community so much uh and i i think now i see folks health i feel like they just kind of like sprouted in the last like three to five years and just they just got a ceo mm-hmm. and so that's huge mm-hmm. huge for the queer and trans trans especially because they're helping provide uh, hrt to people all across the country and so we need more businesses like folks health and so how do we do that Mm -hmm. and part of that is helping people create their new identities as entrepreneurs that not only can make a lot of money but deserve to make a lot of money i think what i appreciate about that that whole idea too is that like what is this pursuit of like queer and trans power building that is inherent to like queer and trans justice movement work already? But in the sense that like, yes, liberation is alluring and we have to continue to make liberation alluring for folks to get mobilized around wanting to push for the changes that need to happen um, structurally, systemically, et cetera, right? So then take that big conceptual idea down to how do we also exist in our current reality where we're not in a liberated, liberated, um, uh, society, right? Like folks have to pay bills, folks have to eat, folks have to like, you know, afford to do certain things. And so that power building, you know, around like, I think, <laughs> I think about how many times you scroll through social media, seeing folks as crowdsourced, like crowdfunding pages, because they, you know, need groceries all the way up to, you know, especially queer and trans folks needing um, access to like medications or biomedical transition related things. And I feel like it's a pretty common phrase now of just like everybody's passing around the same $20 to each other because just like there's not there's not substantive monetary capital that's easily accessible. And I also see a lot of like I think about um, another another podcast um, called Gender Reveal that uh, as regularly as they can puts together kind of these micro grants to be able to offer out to trans people that there's there's no catch, right? Like there's nothing like behind that. It's just a, a simple application to say like, hey, I need monies and off, off they go. So like these, and I'm sure they don't have a fat stack of cash necessarily because that podcast is, you know, they've got their uh, Patreon or whatever they have to be able to get small small, super small donor, like, um, 
payments to be able to pay some bills and then they sell merch and just like piecing together all these cash flow streams in a way that just like feels inherently queer because that's the model that we have like that's what we're able to do um and I think too just like with the power building comes all of the complexities of power dynamics around lines of race and class and gender and assumed race and gender um so I don't think anything that you're saying you know is like super super clear and easy to do right but like just as a general idea like folks need money and so how do we help folks achieve their material needs so that they can also like plan for futures and plan for like bettered lives without having to worry about where's my next meal coming from or how am I paying next month's rent one of my things with coaching is uh, I want to build queer wealth through entrepreneurship. And there's many ways to help people, queer people build wealth. Uh, my way, my, yeah, just way of doing it right now is uh, through coaching people to build their own businesses and grow their own businesses if they already have mm-hmm. them. And going, uh, <clears throat> off of what you talked about with that podcast and how they'll have like little micro grants. It got me thinking about how a lot of businesses right away when they start, like, and I'm talking specifically queer and trans businesses, especially if they have like products, they'll be like, I'll donate 20% of my revenue to some kind of organization or grant thing, some, some kind of charitable thing, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't help the business right away because if it, it takes like three to five years for a business to be profitable okay. if it's going to survive mm-hmm. and so i'm thinking if you the bigger business that you have the bigger impact you can have because then you can give more money and so if giving right away it's, it's kind of like filling your own bucket before filling somebody else's mm. fill up your bucket so you can have the most uh, capital to give later. Sure. Okay. And an analogy, I can't remember where I heard this, but it was um, somebody who was, uh, I think it's probably adapted from some telephone game, <laughs> you know, how it goes, yes. but it, but it's the same kind of idea of if you're always trying to, if you're giving all of your bricks away to help other people build their house, well, now you have no bricks to build your house. Mm-hmm. And so getting your stuff in order, so then you can contribute more later on. Mm-hmm. And there's other ways to give and not monetarily right away. And so for like, for me, it's, giving pro bono sessions Mm -hmm. and helping people that can't afford to pay for my services right now, Mm -hmm. because we also don't want to discount ourselves too much, especially people with those, um, you're using a term that I haven't, uh, heard before at the multi, more multi-marginalized. Multiply marginalized. Yeah. <laughs> Multiply marginalized. Yeah. Yes. And so especially like folks like that, who it's like, there's, they're already um, being disadvantaged in how society is treating them. And so why ask them to discount further whatever they're going to offer mm-hmm. instead of building themselves up so they can be secure and safe and then they can be in a better place to help others. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that's how I approach it. Not everyone's going to agree with that mm-hmm. and that's okay. 
because there's so many different ways to approach problems and a lot of gray area. And as long as one way isn't actively harming another, then people are just going to approach things differently and you don't have to work with somebody you don't agree with. When you mentioned earlier, right, like the the idea that, oh, if someone's kind of getting their coin or kind of getting their um, stuff hyped up, that it inherently takes away from another. I think when we talk about like racialized class and like gendered lines, like there is some reality of that, but that's a structural issue. Like that's a systemic oppression issue that we're, we're led to believe slash also the distribution of wealth along racialized lines is real and right like to the to the general point of like what does it mean to power build and build social and financial capital as like queer and trans people as it relates to justice work right like and that scarcity model it makes me um think about um some of the like really interesting pushback that i saw take place i forget when sometime in the past handful of months because time is fake during this pandemic living um but there was this like pushback because like patrice colors the co-founder of black lives matter right like had bought a house and i don't remember the sticker price of this house because i have no conception of what houses cost but she bought a house um and folks were like you're supposed to be doing justice work, like you're supposed to be doing inclusivity work. How are you going to like saunter off and pay, you know, X amount of dollars to buy this home? Apparently, I think she also has other properties, um, et cetera. And like, I think about that in relation to scarcity model that like, I think there's also this pressure that if folks are aspiring to kind of achieve a different way of living that doesn't look like you're in the struggle, then you get pushback. And I, I'm reminded to, um, of a session I went to with Dominique Morgan, who's the uh, executive director of Black and Pink based in Omaha, Nebraska. And um, the session was kind of about some of the like operational and like philosophical choices that the organization, her organization made. And she was talking about how like when she came in as executive director, she was making somewhere in the realm of like, I don't know, 50K. Um, and as like she came in and was kind of analyzing the the priorities of the organization, she made an executive decision to like bump everybody's pay, but also to like pay herself as an executive director, like six figures, right? And she was talking about how like, yeah, she's someone who um, is system impacted, has a history with like the criminal injustice system. And now she's the executive director of this organization doing work that is intended to like create change around the criminal injustice system. And so she doesn't feel like she has to be someone who continues to like live in struggle monetarily when she's doing this work and there's enough capital within the organization to be able to achieve their organizational goals towards justice work and also pay everybody a reasonable wage including herself as a black trans woman right so like I, those two like anecdotes which are also messy because like these are black queer and trans women who like are multiply marginalized and should be able to get all the coin that they can for the work that they're doing and the labor they do. Um, but I think that, that that idea, the idea of if you don't look like you're living in the struggle, then you're not doing justice work is messy, but something that I feel like is probably pretty commonplace among your average like queer and trans person which I think makes it hard for folks to figure out like how to be supportive of people who have figured out ways to build personal capital 
because we haven't quite figured out ways to like level up everybody's capital because of systemic oppression. It's this very self-feeding, shitty, cyclical thing of like, well, you look like you're doing fine. So why are you also like, why are you also asking for money for top surgery? Or you like own a car, what do you mean you can't afford your groceries, right? Like Yeah, it's very messy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's no clear answer on any of it. Uh, but I definitely have seen that. And I think I saw it more so uh, even when I was in college, because in college, mm. most people don't have a lot of money to begin with, and then multiply that with being queer and trans, and either coming from a low-income background or just not having parents that are supportive of you to help pay for anything, mm-hmm. it gets harder. And I think part of that, too, is once you are somebody that's making more money and can afford uh, more luxury items and luxury is a very subjective term here, the guilt that you might feel because of that. And so I've, I've talked to others about this, uh, not even being queer and trans, but just also coming from a low income background. How do you deal when you're making more money than like even maybe your parents have ever made in their life? Sure. And the different dynamics that can come from that. Now that's not uh, exactly what we talked about, like with the community part, uh, but it's a similar idea of your, your power has changed while people you care about their power hasn't. Sure. And I, I feel like when we talk about power here, it feels kind of icky. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. feel great, but it, it is kind of the reality that's coming with the situation right now. Mm-hmm. And like you've already said, it's messy. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm not as update on a lot of uh, social justice movements, especially the um, people in them, like with the, I didn't know about the house <laughs> and that kind of deal, yeah. but mm-hmm. I think that's where you and I kind of complement each other. We come in <laughs> from these different angles yeah. uh, and, and see how it's affecting people. Mm-hmm. And so even if it's not people that are uh, directly, like you said, in the struggle, and I'm, I'm thinking of even since I'm in the Twin Cities living right outside Minneapolis and Mm. after George Floyd was murdered and all the people that came out and protested here, you have people that maybe were directly out protesting. uh, And then there's people that were supportive, but they weren't out protesting Mm -hmm. and that uh, struggle feel can impact them both and impact them both differently and then especially when you have those multiple marginalized identities it just adds to it mm-hmm. um, whether you're out there directly doing a lot of the advocacy work the activism in the streets or you're at home and uh, more maybe vocal online or just uh, a supporter you might have different feelings of how much money you think you deserve based on what other people are making so it's kind of like the opposite of comparing of comparison by way of uh thinking that you're not good enough by looking at somebody else it's Mm -hmm. it's going the other way Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah i i mean i just i think because there's so much ick that affects all marginalized people right but we're, we're able to talk from the perspective of queer and trans people that like that scarcity model really makes it easy I think to kind of look at someone else's success and say like well why do you deserve this when like I'm not I'm not getting what I need um and I think makes it tricky for folks to be forthcoming with supporting other people with achieving their goals because it's like well 
I think I'm wondering if it's like a trust issue, right? Like, even if you're maybe to your analogy earlier, right? Like if you're someone who's ready to like give other folks bricks to do their building and you want to like secure some for yourself, is there enough trust within like your ecosystem to say like, is there a way for everybody to get the amount of bricks that they need when we come upon a supply of bricks. Um, there's enough to go around. Like, like we're all just trying to hoard what we need instead of thinking of what's best for everybody. Yeah, right. And that's conditioned in like, you know, that's conditioned into people, I think, because of individualization, because of meritocracy, because of every, like all the things that we could name about just how our society currently functions, which is why, right? Like I think queer and trans folks, um, you know, and other like communities that are impacted by systemic oppression do have to like configure these new models of existing, these new models of doing things, just because like we're not being served by existing structures, governmentally, societally, like all those things, right? So like, I also think about in the context of the pandemic um, and how that kind of impacts queer and trans folks who are maybe not even at a place where they're trying to power build to be able to like achieve a, a level of comfortability in in their financial lives but like just being able to pay the bare minimum of their bills is that we're seeing you know what's being called the great resignation right like folks are leaving their jobs right we also know that queer and trans folks are disproportionately represented young queer and trans folks especially are disproportionately represented among like service sector type jobs so like restaurants service industry type jobs um which are people interfacing type jobs so they're at higher risk of contracting COVID-19 right we all we that's that's the gist and so during this like max mass exodus of folks dipping out of jobs because of xyz reasons um I'm anticipating you know, and I haven't seen as much of this data, but I'm anticipating that we're going to see folks who are probably starting up their own businesses, ventures, side hustles that become main hustles, right? Like whatever the case is. Um, and so like from your vantage point, like what does that inevitable shift in the landscape of folks's job prospects, business ventures, business building, um, mean for like the next handful of years of like queer entrepreneurship, queer business building, queer, you know, networking, etc. So the gig economy has been around for a while. When I was in college and my undergrad, we talked about the gig economy. Mm-hmm. And then the, this pandemic, I think, has really shown that it's here to stay. Yeah. I... I would imagine that a high percentage, especially of queer and trans folks, will at some point in time, if they haven't already, exchange a service or a product of their own creation Mm. for money, side hustle, freelance. And another thought that I was thinking, so I have another day job and one of the higher up leaders, it's a corporation. So one of like the C-suite folks was doing a presentation. And what she said was the skills that people had, like how people would stay at a business at one company for like 20 to 30 years and then retire to their pension, whatever, uh, and do the same skill. Well, those skills that they have, they're only lasting like three years now. Okay. So your skill that you're using today, it's only going to last like three years. That's fine. And we already know that <laughs> Yeah, it's great, right? And so people are constantly, especially I think younger folks already know 
and are already used to having to constantly evolve and adapt for the situations. Mm -hmm. And there is just some numbers I saw recently, actually, about in the last, uh, I think it was the numbers for 2020 or 2021, either way, a pandemic year, how there's more businesses created in the U.S. than in previous years. And I predict that there's going to be more and more. Which makes sense. And I, I, I recently came across some study that was talking about that like Gen Z and millennials, especially younger millennials, whatever that means now, I'm assuming that's us. We've talked about how I don't care about generational differences, but the study talked about Gen Z and millennials, um, you know, circa this pandemic are really at a place where they have an appetite for greater flexibility in their work schedules. I think, you know, I'm definitely an advocate that like the nine to five or like eight to 4.30 workday should just be abolished. Like that's not realistic to expect people to be actively productive during those spans of time. We're not paying people for commuting to and from their jobs, which is egregious, right? Like I think that for all of the disaster that has been this pandemic, I think that it has definitely opened up some necessary conversations around what we mean by workplace, what we mean by a job and what we mean by like, meaningful work for meaningful pay um and so i i agree right i think that just like we're continue we're going to continue to have to we're going to continue to see workplaces have to um embed a true sense of flexibility because i i would say that i'm in a workplace that is using flexibility in a much more rigid sense than that word should imply but um really just kind of having to um concede that like we're gonna have to look at things differently and if workplaces aren't willing to shift to do that that there's a lot of models in place for folks to be able to conceptualize their own their own workplace environment that satisfies what they need, that satisfies a pace that means that you get to, you know, wake up and own your morning instead of wake up and have to catch a bus and transport yourself to work for a certain amount of time or to caffeinate yourself because you need to, you know, wake up at an obscene hour to be able to participate in your workplace. All of these factors that really just are, um, some of the most sickening byproducts of late stage capitalism. And something that we, we had talked about wanting to touch on a bit is just like another one of the tools um, that you've used or that you, we talked about is kind of important and that is also drastically evolving and also is a place where queer and trans young folks um, are widely represented is social media as a tool for um, marketing or as a tool for connecting with other folks who do comparable work um, or messaging around, um, you know, some of these things that we're talking about are just like, how do you demonstrate to other people that there's other ways to do what they want to do that doesn't require having to sell their soul to a workplace that doesn't actually value them as a person? What? Um, so for you, um, you know, you use social media very intentionally and you curate very intentional content. So like, what has that process been for you in using social media as a tool to um, promote your message of what you're about in regards to your coaching? Social media is definitely a double-edged sword. Certainly. <laughs> and as, as you're talking about that and uh, staging that question, it got me thinking, um, like with Instagram, we talked about earlier. I don't, I don't know how uh, young Instagram skews anymore. <laughs> we're, we're like, we'll be on the younger end of millennials. 
but I, I used to use my personal Instagram a lot. I was really trying to build that up and had it public. And sometime last year I was like, all right, I'm going to remove all these people that I don't know. I made it private and I haven't posted in months on my private personal Instagram. And I only like use my coaching and with my coaching Instagram, it's, I've made a lot of good friends, a lot of uh, very important community that helps me move forward over the last year. And yeah, I started my coaching Instagram when I started coaching just about a year ago now. Mm -hmm. It's, it's amazing. The people that I've met, I, I don't remember how I met some of these people. I just started following and then there's recommendations, looking at hashtags, all this stuff. And I found this thing called the Queer Impact Collective, which is a group of uh, queer entrepreneurs and change makers led by uh, Meg's, uh, on Instagram, it's Meg's The Connector. And she made the community very intentionally. And so it's a monthly membership for this circle community, but the real value in it is there's three to four zoom meetups she hosts every month and they've evolved. And so now there's some topic-based ones. Uh, There's masterminds, there's just general networking where you see what everyone's doing and you can feed off of each other's energy, hype each other up, uh, do referrals. I've, I met, I had a money coach last year that I worked with and I introduced her to the queer impact collective and she's gotten really involved um, I've through the career impact collective is how I found a book to contribute to the thriving mm-hmm. in business strategies for the LGBTQ plus entrepreneur that was published last year. Mm-hmm. And so it can be used for really amazing things. And back when I was, I, oh man, I've been out as some shade of queer since for like 12 years now. And I remember using Tumblr, you know, to make mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. connections. <laughs> uh, not really Facebook. It was mostly Tumblr at that time. And then in college, uh, some face like Facebook groups became more of a thing. And then I met other people. And so I've, I learned a lot about myself and made connections with other queer and trans people across the country, across the world because of social media. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this really resonate with that, especially if they come from an area that doesn't have a strong Mm -hmm. queer and trans community or active. Uh, Because sometimes I I have some friends that are queer and trans, but they just, uh, well, they aren't like visibly so how you like sense of like dyed hair and uh, (laughs) non-mainstream clothing type stuff. I think people get what I say when not visibly queer. <laughs> Less, n- not as many cues being projected. Yeah, Ex- yes. uh, yeah. <laughs> and they just—it's uh, not a huge part of their identity, and it—it okay. it really depends on what stage of uh, life you are at, too. So, like when I was in college and when we met, being queer, especially trans, was a big part of my identity. Something that I thought about so much throughout the day and now that I got solidified in who I am and then just in other things I it's not something that is it's front of mind in the work that I do but it's my own personal identity it's not as front of mind Mm -hmm. like oh yeah I'm queer and trans but it's not something that I'm constantly worrying about and have like heightened awareness of other people 
perceiving me a certain way. Mm-hmm. Also, because I've been on hormones for a lot, for many years. And so I am cis-assumed most places I go. I think one of the key yeah. things that like is important based on the story you're sharing and that I also value social media for um, is that for queer and trans folks, like it definitely is a tool for building community, especially if you're in, like you said, spaces where it's harder to access community or you're not sure where to start or you have questions or you're looking for possibility models. Um, Something Mm -hmm. that I was griping about earlier when we were chatting though, is that like what's getting um, me a bit antsy is that we are seeing, not that this is brand new, but what I feel like is absolutely happening um, is that social media platforms are really prioritizing like marketing and content creator and like business users, which like makes sense because that's a sac- that's a huge saturation of who's on- who is on there. Um, but what I'm worried about is that like what does that mean for the community building aspect when you're trying to build community not around hey can you pay for my service or hey can you buy my product or hey can you like pay for whatever experience I'm offering right like it's truly just for the sake of like I'm trying to like connect and build an ecosystem of people or engage with other folks like me so like hoping to not see social media evolve to a place where we're past the point where like folks can build that community and then also like opt in to engaging with content that has to do with you know being pitched to pay for something because that should be there could be there but social media you know because they want to make monies are definitely prioritizing the people who are also trying to make monies um so then in addition to like the community building aspect that we are very aware of social media offering thinking about the the potential too of folks using social media to kind of broadcast their message, whether they're an educator, an author, a content creator, a queer entrepreneurship coach, um, right? Like something I also wanted to touch base on with you is um, what thought process do you go through to ensure that like your messaging does not um, kind of play into what I was taught, was calling toxic positivity, right? Like the example I gave you is that when folks were getting stimulus checks, the Twitter discourse, were, one one train of thought was, well, you should take your stimulus check and you should invest or you should start an LLC or you should do something that's going to like project you further in your professional career goals. Whereas other folks were like, hold up, we've got bills to pay or, you know, I can't pay all my bills with this anyway. So maybe I am going to go buy something frivolous or something that is not going to, you know, I'm going to go buy a TV or I'm going to go buy a kayak or, you know what I mean? Like folks being given the option to do whatever they wanted with these random, not enough money to actually cover the cost of living (laughs) stimulus checks. So the core question there was, how do you approach like ensuring that your content is really mindful of the fact that like there's mess in the process to achieving whatever definition of success someone has? Something that you told me when I was in college that I always come back to. Oh no, what did I say? can't please everybody. (laughs) Oh my gosh! So that that's something that I always remember because um, and then another thing in marketing is uh, when you're marketing to uh, and trying to please everybody, you please and market to nobody. Okay. And so you can't uh, create a message that's going to satisfy everybody, mm-hmm. but you can create a message that is going to uh, positively, ideally positively impact the your ideal market. 
And so another rule that from people who actually give a shit and people that I follow is that you put out way more value than you do pitching. If you never pitch, if you never put out your offer, no one's ever going to buy it. So you have to put out your offer. You have to pitch people. That's otherwise, yeah, you're never going to sell anything and then you're not going to make money. And then what's the point? And then you're not even really an entrepreneur. (laughs) You're not a business, but you need to be able to put out value too and making sure it's actually valuable. And so to what you were talking about, the toxic positivity, I'm not putting out stuff saying, if you just believe <laughs> you can do it because <laughs> that's that's complete trash um belief is a huge part of it like but doing belief work which is really how i think about self-trust work trust that you can actually create something of value that other people are going to value that you can make money from that you can make a living off of um but what that does when you create that self-trust that generates you doing actions that are going to continue with that. Um, It's kind of the idea with uh, like manifesting. I think manifesting is a very uh, tossed around word that people don't quite know what it is. Uh, The person that I follow, I forget if this is her actual username, but she does that wholehearted coaching. And her coaching work is really around manifestation and actually honoring where it's come from and like the cultural connections with it. Um, But what it is, is you can, you, when you manifest, you think of what you want and why you want it. That's it. You don't do the how. Uh, The universe is going to provide the how as long as you're clear on the what and the why, because when you're also clear on those, you're naturally going to take more actions that are going to fulfill that how. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so whether you're somebody, I'm a person that believes like things are connected in the universe. Um, Everything we do, there's a reaction to it. There's a consequence, Mm -hmm. all that stuff is connected. And so I believe in this. I think what people don't always uh, take into account is, yeah, when you do all that work and actually truly in your gut believe, and I'm not saying it's like all of a sudden, no, I trust me. I believe, I believe I can do this. I've done that to myself. And it's like, (laughs) (laughs) and you know what I had to show for it? Uh, Nothing. A lot of (laughs) lessons learned. (laughs) It's a continuous, it's a continuous uh, work in progress uh, because when you develop and get a deeper understanding of what believing in yourself means and what trusting in yourself and see results happen. And then it's going to be like, Oh, wow, this is actually working. And I I feel like that can also relate to coming out as queer and trans. It's Mm -hmm. like, once you finally accept, this is who I am, this is the path that I want to take. And it's even uh, exploring your gender expression and it's fluid. It can, it can change for a lot of people on how they want to express themselves mm-hmm. and being okay with allowing that to happen. You can have your sights set on something, you know, along on the horizon that's currently maybe unachievable based on resources, based on systemic uh, oppression, based on not having the current like knowledge set or skill set to figure out exactly how you're going to get there. Right. Um, but 
um, I think that what I'm gleaning from what you're saying, right, when talking about how to message, whether it's through social media or it's through a book or it's through a newsletter or it's through whatever, a podcast, <laughs> um, you know, if you're, if you're at a place where you're trying to coach or encourage, right, folks to work towards whatever that goal on the horizon is, it's, I imagine, too, about managing expectations and understanding that there's not, like, I, a, a one-size-fits-all method in which you're going to land there, and B, it's not going to be smooth sailing, right? Because as we know, like, as trans people, there's so much complexity to be able to being able to, like, own your transness on your own terms, right? Like, perceptions of other people. If you're um, looking to access biomedical transition treatments, right, like, the gatekeeping is, like, rife in the medical healthcare system. If you're, you know, looking to, like, live your best life, right, like, there's lots of existing barriers at play that want to not let you do that. Um, And so I would imagine, right, whether it's, you know, a business or an LLC or a nonprofit organization or some kind of mutual aid project, because we're definitely seeing a, a stronger emergence of those, um, you know, whether it's some kind of uh, whatever the project is, right? Like there's, especially for queer and trans people, there's going to be a lot of adversity, right? To achieving it. And also like besides the adversity, what, what is very much evidenced by you going from talking about like an online commerce site that populates other queer and trans folks' mm-hmm. products into one space versus now doing this queer coaching to support queer and trans entrepreneurs into actualizing their goals and, and navigating how they'd like to proceed with their, with their big why is that you learn a lot about yourself in the process that influences changes to what that final product, or at least the checkpoint of getting to the first big accolade looks like. Because what you and I talked about six, five, four years ago, Mm -hmm. right, is very different than what you're doing now, but that's not a failure. That's you learning about what was possible and stumbling upon other things that opened up different possibilities for you to say, ah, that actually vibrates in my soul differently and maybe even better than what course I was currently on. And then you shifted courses. Pivoting and changing course does not mean that you failed. No. And I think that's something in business. What's the giving up versus quitting? So mm-hmm. when I think of someone's that, that they're giving up on something, it's a lot more like desperate. Like everything is just like downtrodden. They can't do it anymore um and it's a lot more internal like they just aren't feeling strong enough anymore versus uh quitting knowing when something just isn't working sure and that was uh like my business the market was too small uh the people that i wanted to work with they just couldn't at that moment in time Mm -hmm. and things of all those businesses they're still around today uh, I think they've ramped up a little bit, still nowhere near probably mm-hmm. what they could be. Mm-hmm. And I hope they continue to grow and just get bigger and bigger. Um, but quitting, it's not a bad thing because you learn a lot in the process and it's very intentional being like, you know, it's it's time to hang this up. And it was sure. hard for me to hang up that first business because that was my first one. I was really trying to make work. 
But in the end, I know it was the right thing to do because now I'm like super passionate about coaching and helping other people in this way. It's like mm-hmm. something that I look forward to. And every time I get off a call with somebody, I'm like, this, this is why I do this mm-hmm. because they get all these insights and yeah, just knowing when to quit versus uh, what it feels like to give up. It's mm-hmm. a totally different feeling mm-hmm. and it's going to happen. You're going to probably experience both. When I, I think that's, what's important about like the approach you take specifically through Instagram, because that's one of your, your primary vessels at this time for, for messaging is that like, you are honest about the ways in which someone can get tripped up along this process. You're not Mm. keeping it a secret that like once upon a time you had a completely different project that you were working on. But like, like I said, at the beginning of our conversation is that even though that was not the project that sustained till to this moment Mm -hmm. as the project you're currently doing, the impetus behind wanting to build that project around platforming and supporting queer and trans content creators and merchandisers and whatever you know folks would have had their stuff populated to that site there's some some comparable objective between that project plan and like this one where the goal the goal and the idea is still you want to see queer and trans folks succeed and whatever their passion project is and whatever their professional project is um which I think is important. Again, I think that you're really transparent about like, there's going to be a lot of things that trip people up in this process. And then you try to offer tools that aren't behind a paywall, right? To say like this, you know, here's some food for thought or here's a question you should ask yourself or here's, you know, a lesson that I learned based on my own experience. And you're using that as a possibility model displaying to say, you know, things are possible I'm not saying that they're not possible and that anything could be possible, but like, it's not just gonna like land in your lap and be Mm -hmm. there for you because you wish it upon yourself. I like what you said about the possibility model Um, because the stuff that I put out on social media isn't going to work for everybody Mm -hmm. and everyone's situation is different Mm -hmm. and different people are gonna have different obstacles. And so the obstacles that I went through even if you didn't have the same obstacle, there's probably something that you can resonate with and then you can generate insight from. Mm-hmm. So the big thing with coaching is generating your own insights. Uh, people don't always understand what the difference between like a coach and a advisor or consultant is. Mm-hmm. So a coach, I don't tell you what to do. Really, you have 95% of the answers that you need inside of you already. And you just need to help getting them out. And so, well, you, you might rebut and say, well, I don't know how to make a business. I'm like, I'm sure you know where to go to get started to look. Mm-hmm. And then once you get started to go and look there, that's going to lead you down some other paths to keep going and researching and figuring it out. And that's what some people it just, they need that person that's going to hold them accountable to even take those actions. So to, to take us towards closing, Thinking about how your kind of target audience is queer and trans folks, either as entrepreneurs or whatever language they'd like to use for themselves, what would you offer as kind of the top word of wisdom message specifically (laughs) 
for that uh, audience that you think is so important that they need to hear? The same thing that you told me. You can't please everybody. <laughs> it, it's so huge, especially when you're when you are building a business, you are putting yourself out there. You are opening yourself up for criticism from people across the world or down the street. And it's going to happen. The more followers you have on social media, the more products that you're selling, someone and their mom is going to have an opinion about it. And so take everything with a grain of salt, uh, but keep an open mind. Amazing. Well, I'm glad that I've had the fortune of watching six years of this process and I'm excited to see what, you know, the next six years or whatever it looks like, even though, like I said, time is fake. Um, where can folks find you to learn more about your work or follow along in your continued process? Yeah. So across social media I, and my website, it's coachbastion.co. Well, again, I appreciate your friend, um, and I'll talk to you later. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbyte at sgdinstitute.org. This podcast is made possible by the labor and commitments of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, and Nick for all of your support with editing, promotion, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>